Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study Class. We're glad you're here in class this morning. We're glad for our, our online listeners. Uh, my name is Lori Atkins. Um, some of you may know Russell Atkins. I am Russell's much younger sister. Um, uh, probably one of the nicest things my brother has ever done for me is introduce me to this class. Um, we were calculating, it's been a little over eight years ago, um, that he said to me one Friday night, you, you need to come to Sabbath school class with me tomorrow. It's amazing. It's changed my life. It's Tim Jennings' class. Well, two things occurred to me, and neither one of them made sense. One, I mean, 11.30, 11.45 church service was tough for us to make it to. So I think we were even meeting earlier back then. We were meeting in the A.W. Spalding band room at that time. And so the fact that we, he would get up for a Sabbath school class spoke volumes. Then I knew Tim Jennings, also much younger, but still. <laughs> I knew Tim Jennings. He was in school when I was in school here. He coached my sixth, seventh grade girls softball team. And I got to tell you, if I were going to come up with people that I thought would be teaching a life-changing Sabbath school class 30 years later, uh, Tim wasn't really at the top of that list. So I was intrigued, to say the least. And uh, so I started coming, and it has had the same revolutionary, revelationary, life-changing impact on me. So I've been coming for over eight years this is my first time teaching, so your patience and compassion and active participation will be greatly appreciated today. So let's open class with prayer. Father God, we're so grateful to have the opportunity to be here, and we're grateful to learn and know what you're really like and what you're really about. And we ask that you you be here among us this morning and that you guide our discussion and that you open our hearts and minds so that we can see and love the truth about who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are studying lesson four in our quarterly about the book of James. And the title of the lesson is Being and Doing. So uh, Saturday's memory text says... But be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So what do you think it means? What, what comes to your mind when you think about being a doer of the word? Do you think it means just doing all the right things? I mean, I don't know about you, but a lot of us were raised with a pretty good list of things we should eat, tithes we should pay, Clothes we should wear or not wear, what we could do on Sabbath. You could play games as long as you added Bible to the front. You could play Bible football. You could play Bible frisbee, but not regular. I mean, do we think this is what what James is talking about when he he says not just hearing but doing God's word? Oh, well, in doing the word. It becomes so ingrained in your heart and mind that you are not really putting forth effort. I must do this and I must do that. It just is coming automatically because you have been changed by God. And isn't that really the only way it can become automatic? Not just the word. I mean, think about any skill, any practice, an instrument, a language, an exercise, can it become ingrained? Can you become an expert in it without doing it? And we'll talk a little bit more about that. I have that quote in my notes here in a second. Um, but aren't there a lot of folks and denominations, even in Christianity, that still stick to the to the checklist and the the list of do's and don'ts? I mean, there are. There are entire denominations that truly consider participating in required sacraments and rites and ceremonies as necessary and requirements for salvation, or at least to lessen the extent of judgment. 
Russell. When I read the text, I, my first thought was the evidence of the life of Christ on this earth. And he, numerous times, he said, "I've come to do my to do my Father's will. Uh, right. I am about my Father's business." And what was his what was his Father's business? It was healing. Mm-hmm. It was bringing uh, light to darkness. It was. Um, uh, you know, freeing cap, freeing people from the the, the captive right. superstitions and right. rituals that uh, they had bogged down in the symbology of, and he he did it. He, exactly. He sit there and teach. He, he healed first, and then that that gave him an audience of listeners. Right. And he went to to the people. He went to where they were. Yeah, and, and most importantly, he never compelled anyone to sit and listen to him or to come and hear him. Right. No compulsion involved whatsoever. Oh, I think that's very true. So my mom mentioned not just talking the talk, walking the walk. Saturday's lesson lists or recounts a story of a very famous tightrope walker named the Great Blondin, who famously walked on a tightrope across Niagara Falls and actually carried one of his assistants on his back while he was doing it. This was in the, the mid to late 1800s. So the Prince of Wales was apparently at this event and saw what happened, witnessed it, saw his ability, knew he could do it, and apparently the great Blondin asked the Prince of Wales, well, you just saw I could do it. Do you want me to carry you on my back across the Niagara Falls as well? And the Prince was hesitant, so to speak. So, I mean, knowing about... We've mentioned in this class, Tim has, has uh, listed the analogy or the example of someone... Studying the techniques of swimming, knowing all the strokes that you can make, the mechanics, the muscle motion, the principles of buoyancy, all of the facts about swimming. But if that person is thrown in the deep end of the pool, does that really mean they know how to swim? And can they learn how to swim without actually practicing and putting forth the effort? Um, I mean, experience is so important this class has made it one of the three legs of our integrative evidence-based model and we have evidence in scripture of how important uh, experience is we we quote the text psalms 34 8 taste and see that the lord is good john 20 27 put your finger here see my hands reach out your hand and put it in my side stop doubting and believe so there's, there's quite a bit of scriptural evidence that doing and experiencing is more important or as important as hearing and is really the outgrowth of hearing being transformed and then putting God's words into practice. So can anybody think of, we, we talk a lot about natural law concepts in this class. Um, can anybody talk or think of some natural laws that are in involved in being a doer of the word. What natural law constructs do you think are in play? I think you mentioned earlier that by actually an active participation in in any activity, good or bad, right, it becomes a a, a habit. It becomes a neurologic pattern, mm-hmm. and that's how we were created. You know, it's, it's the law, the law of worship. Correct. By beholding, we become changed, et cetera, et cetera. I have the law of worship. By beholding, we com- become changed. And as well as the law of exertion, which I think ties in straight to that, that you can, we talked about this a few weeks ago, you cannot grow or develop or increase really anything, a muscle, a skill, or a habit, or an acumen without exerting it, stretching it, practicing it, usually on an ongoing basis and repeatedly. Um, and this ex- repeated experience of actually doing and applying and putting God's methods, God's principles into action is actually very faith strengthening. It gives us great confidence in, in what he said. And it also points us back to the nature of design law. It, it's confidence building because it's, it becomes very evident that that's how we were designed. It's how we were made and that we are only being pointed back to how we were originally created that we've deviated so far from. So, let's look at Sunday's lesson. 
title of Sunday's lesson is Knowing Your Enemy. So I'm not sure if, if others got the same. If you studied the entire lesson, I did get an overall impression that the the quarterly seemed to be very commandment and behavior driven um, when it talked about being a doer of the work and, and our works. But there were certainly some excellent points in several areas. But after having attended this class, it's almost just automatic now for me to ask myself, what law lens is is the author looking through? Or what law construct is being presented? Is it a natural law or is it imposed law? Um, so if somebody would want to would like to read James 1, 23 and 24, shout it out when you got it. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So I have a quote by Richard James that says, Whenever two people meet, there are really six people present. There is each person as they see themselves, each person as the other person sees them, and each person as they really are. (laughs) So... Has anyone else other than me ever experienced this? Or is the, are we oftentimes our own worst enemy? And how quickly can we look at ourselves in a mirror? And even if we see the truth or an actual picture of who we are, how quick can we walk away and become something way better than that in, in our own minds? Um, so... I think that this is one of the most uh, remarkable and inspiring things about David's prayer in Psalm 51 after he was confronted by Nathan. He realized where not being truthful about who he was and and the, the not finer parts of his character had gotten him. He had committed adultery. He had committed murder. Um... And so at that point, he confessed the desire to embrace the truth about who he really was. Had no desire to hide anything that was bad or ugly. And he begged for God to search him and find even the smallest defect. Because he knew once it was uncovered, once it was acknowledged, then it could be healed. And God could replace his, his old heart with a, with a right spirit. So... Uh, Sunday's lesson lists two examples from Matthew of a couple of men who had some distorted self-images. There's a story about the rich young ruler. There's a story about Peter. And they were both self-deceived about their true spiritual states. Uh, The rich young ruler, he really thought that he had done everything he was supposed to do. He was checking all the right boxes And uh, he thought he had done everything he needed to do to be saved. But apparently there was a lingering doubt, or he wouldn't even ask Christ the question, what must I do to be saved? So, not just uh, the rich young ruler, the Bible gives several more examples of some folks who seem to have gotten caught up in the rituals and the symbols and their works And they completely missed the healing message about God's character of love that they were originally designed to reveal. So can you think of any of these folks in biblical history that got way too caught up in the ceremony and the ritual and the practices and missed the heart transformation? Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, I like it. And I, I don't think he started out that way. You know? No. no. I mean, I think he was... And he was chosen by God. For sure. Let's go back a little further to the Pharisees' ancestors. Let's look at the Israelites. Um, I've got some texts from Isaiah 1 that I'm sure you're familiar with. I won't read the whole text, but I'll give you some highlights. 
The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. This is God talking. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. The message, that was the NIV, the message version says, Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbath, special meetings, meetings, meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. <laughs> Hosea 6.6 6 says, I am after love that lasts, not more religion. I want you to know God not to go to more prayer meetings. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So what was the problem here? I mean, if anyone had a direct word from God, it was these folks. He wrote it for them. Moses wrote it for them. So what were they missing? Why were they not considered doers of the word when they were doing exactly what they had been instructed to do? It wasn't in their heart. That's it. There was no heart transformation happening. So they continued to hold on to their celebrity worship, their television, their Facebook, their, uh, oh, wait, that's something totally different. (laughs) They continued to be idol worshipers and held on to other gods. Totally different, right? None of us here. So then later on, like I said, their, uh, their descendants, the Pharisees, also kind of famous for developing a significant list of rules and right works that were burdensome and overbearing, but missing, missing the picture of God such that they did not recognize him when he came and lived among them. So again, a couple of texts. Um, this is uh, in Matthew 23, kind of the famous woe unto chapter um, again, I won't read all of it, just some highlights. Uh, Christ is teaching, and he says, The teachers of the laws and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything is done for people to see. They make their their robes wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. Is that not prevalent today? Have all these committee meetings and everybody decides what ought to be done and then no one does it? I see many parallels between between these constructs and many organized Christian religions today. Do y'all? I mean, we. I don't know that, that it's changed much. Down in verse 11, he starts to uh, talk about how things should really look when he says, The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You shut the door of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You travel the land over and see the land and see over to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. We've talked about that in this class. How how can searching and converting someone make them twice the child of hell they were before? Because they don't see their need anymore. I think that's a, that's a big part of it. They bought counterfeit uh, a view of God as you better toe the line. He's harsh. He's going to whack you unless you get in line. It's right. A view of God that says he's a loving God that I want to emulate. Yes, and I mean I think Tim has mentioned that that converting somebody to a false construct of God 
is really more difficult to undo than someone that may have never known God at all. And I don't know if any of you have experienced that, but certainly the unlearning I have had to do since coming to this class is every bit as significant as the, the learning. I've heard it said that the most difficult addiction for a professional psychologist, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, whatever, to deal with and work with a person on is religious addiction. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably true. Once it's, once it's ingrained, I mean, it's very, it's very difficult to, to give up something that you have based foundational life constructs on. Especially if you believe God said it. Correct. That's God. It's not just me, it's God. You're arguing with God. Exactly. And it's, it's an admission that maybe you have been wrong or you've been taught wrong. And once that admission comes, the potential is for everything to fall apart. You know what I mean? So it's very, it's very frightening and overwhelming for somebody to, to try to back up and, and embrace new truth. I've experienced it. That's why when you talk about Thomas... I've always thought of Thomas in a negative light. <laughs> Maybe that's the, the lesson there of doubting, you know, what's his going to be. Right. But it almost seems to me that um, Thomas is a lesson on tasting and seeing. Absolutely. You know, asking questions. <clears throat> Are you better off just to button it and suck it up and wonder? God said it. Say, Show this to me. Explain this to me. Right. And I think, I mean, I think he was blessed. He also said, blessed are those that, that have not seen and yet believe, but he wasn't chastised for asking to see. You know what I mean? And and the whole come and reason concept. I don't, I don't think God is is against or anti us trying to reason things out. I think that's part of natural law. That there's there's something uh, in the way that God created us that, that that reasoning process and that wrestling process. Yes. With you know, the only source of love and life is uh, is beneficial and transformative for us. I am going to read a quote based on... Oh, and you yes. think that you're perfect once you're converted to, uh, or the whole group does, and they think, or we think, that nobody else is right unless they come to our church. Yeah. Uh, then we start trying to force people to believe the same thing we believe, and force is wrong. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And again, I mean, if if you come to or if you arrive at the point where you think I have the truth, that's a natural outgrowth of that. You you want to share that with people, but the I think the mistake is ever thinking that you've arrived at the truth and that there is not always more truth to uncover and to be open. If you're if you're open to truth, you have to also be open to figuring out everything you thought was right is wrong. And that's, that's really difficult. In the back. Jesus said in Matthew, except you become as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And that actually means to be molded and pliable and teachable. Right. It doesn't mean that we're going to digress and go backwards. It just means that we're pliable and teachable. Yes. And non-judgmental and innocent. I mean, there's lots of childlike traits that are pretty attractive that we lose in adulthood, it seems. I was just going to say, not only with the, the mindset that I had at a younger age of, of getting this view of God, but with that training came the understanding that not only did I receive the truth, but that it would be persecuted. Yes. And when, you're, when you have that mindset um, that the persecution will come against the message that you have, then, then anything new has to be very strongly doubted. And, and I think that really <clears throat> has a tendency to be uh, one of Satan's favorite tools because he takes I agree. those who have, who have been in this situation and said, you know, you're, this is persecution, run. And yet you don't... It is. Yes, makes for sure overly cautious. Yeah. And I would not say that we should not be overly cautious. I mean, anything that, that comes as new truth or something that, that butts up against gives us cognitive dissonance about something that we've believed, we should study it deeply. We should vet it out and, and all those things. But once it is and it's undeniable, then we have to be willing to open, be open and accept it. Yes? 
I've always felt that contradiction in our church yes. because what you said and what Peggy said here about truth and openness, um, I don't know how many times I've heard someone up front say, we have the truth. <laughs> we, and we, you know, in, with, in a manner that says we're the only ones that have. Yes. And yet we're taught that per truth is progressive. Right. Why is progressive? Alan White talks about how we must be open to more light and yes. truth. And that's a biblical principle. For sure. That we'll be learning in eternity. Exactly. So why aren't we continuing to learn here if we're going to be learning throughout eternity? And so exactly. we have the truth. It puts us in a mindset that shuts us It shuts down. down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, Ellen White says that truth loses nothing by examination. By examination, if it if it is true, it's fine. It's fine to vet it out and wrestle with it. It invites that. There comes a time in everyone's development that they have to pick up what they believe and examine it. That's right. And for and, themselves, and then look at the back side of it. You know. There's a statement that you can't say yes, truly say yes to something until you've been allowed to say no to it. Right. So how many kids you know, were never allowed <laughs> yes, to examine Yes, for kids, sure. And then they just throw it out. And Whereas if they'd examined it, maybe they would have said yes. Yes. And I mean, it's so, to me, it's, it's very illogical, irrational, because we don't expect truth to be stagnant in almost any other area. Tim has listed the the examples of, think about in medicine. We have a a medical book from the 1950s and compared to a medical book of today. And if somebody wants to treat somebody and looks at the book of today, nope, not going to go there. I'm going to stick with what we knew in the 50s and treat you in that manner. I mean, nobody wants to go to that doctor. There is ever advancing truth in almost every area other than religion. You know, and that's an analogy, and analogy only goes so far, you know. Uh, the truth we're talking about will never contradict Correct. what has been established. There's a lot of things in medicine, we're in the medical field, uh, and uh, there's a lot of things in medicine that nowadays have contradicted what was thought to be truth before. So, again, the analogy only goes so far. No, I agree, but I can tell you I have learned things now, today, that contradict what I knew as truth in my younger days. And, I mean, I believed it with all my heart. That was right. And I have, I have had to, to let that go and admit yeah. wasn't right. I mean, I was raised Roman Catholic, so I, I can attest. So you, you, have a, you have an idea. <laughs> go ahead. This is why medicine was pretty primitive in this yes. country. We were using things like iron, quinine, and strychnine. Yes, arsenic. Well, those things are deadly. Uh, she had a lot of room to complain about medicines and doctors. It's not the case now. Right. And we have to adjust our mindset about that. No doubt about it. There are, uh, every once in a while I hear of an Adventist fellow or person who has uh, suffered serious or even died because he wouldn't take any modern That's medicine. right. So, yeah, we have to be willing to adjust... Um, in context, our our views of truth. Yes, ma'am. Truth is truth. It doesn't change at all. That's correct. Our understanding of it changes. For sure. When we say we have the truth, there are some things that are true that will never change. Yes. But sometimes we have to adjust our thinking to what it means. Absolutely. Well, this there's, here's an example. Uh, the hour of his judgment is come. The truth, as I understood it growing up, was that this is the time that God gets out his scepter. Yeah, and his books. You didn't make it. You made it. Yeah. And really what we're beginning to understand is the hour of serious judgment is come. Yes. Is he a just God? Is he not a just God? Does his love create change in our hearts? Right. Or does it not? 
and how do we judge him? So that's a difference in looking at the same. Absolutely. So, is, he, is he beating us down or is he saying, here's my character, examine it? Right. So what we're saying is truth does not change. It's our interpretation and understanding of it that grows. And discovery of it. Absolutely. The truth is, was, always will be. We come into, into communion with it in different ways and different times. It's also important to understand truth is infinite. Yes. Because God is infinite, and we are finite, and, and our continuing understanding and improved understanding uh, will be endless. We, we will yes. never arrive at the destination truth. Right. It's a, it's a continuing journey. It's never, it's never an, end, an end point. Right. We describe what we think. That's true, of course. Right. He is true. Right. But I mean, I, I believe that if that is what we are going to be practicing for eternity, that it seems a little ridiculous to not practice that here. Um, so, based on what Russell had said about natural law and uh, repetition and actually practicing. God's methods, principles. Uh, I had a quote from Mrs. White, OHC, and I have no idea what that stands for. Our high calling. calling. Paul declares, I am crucified with Christ. There is nothing so hard as the crucifixion of the will. Christ was tempted in all points like as we are, but his will was ever kept on the side of God's will. In his humanity, he had the same free will that Adam had in Eden. He could have yielded to temptation as Adam yielded. And Adam, by believing God and being a doer of his word, could have resisted temptation just as Christ resisted it. Which, I mean, we've talked in this class, what was the purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? This was the purpose. It was for practice. It was... It was protection and practice. Protection, protecting Adam and Eve because that's the only place that, that Satan was allowed to address them. And practice so that they could weigh the issues out for themselves. Did they trust who God said he was, who God was showing them who he was when he walked with them every day? Or did they believe Satan's allegations? And I mean, we know how, how that turned out, but that's what being a doer of the word has the potential to do in us. Okay, where were we? We were woeing the Pharisees. Um, back to, we're in Matthew 23. But I mean, basically this list, you know that the, the rules that they had in Christ's time were just oppressive, down to the point that they were tithing a tenth of their herbs and spices but at the same time, they were leaving their families destitute and poor and homeless. It was just 180 degrees backwards what they considered as critical and important. And it's why Christ was such a controversial figure at that time, because he basically called them out on every single thing they thought was important, he said was immaterial. So... Sunday's lesson states in the fourth paragraph, the rich young ruler thought he had been keeping all of the commandments. Suddenly he was challenged to adhere to a different kind of obedience, one that he had never anticipated, one that went much deeper than mere outward compliance to rules and regulations. So where do we think the rich young ruler fell uh, in the Lawrence Coburg stages of moral development? We've talked about that a little bit in this class. I'll go, I'll go over them really quickly for you. These stages of moral development are one is obedience and punishment orientation. So we're just basically trying to avoid being punished. So we're going to do, do what we're, we're supposed to do. Self-interest orientation is what's in it for me. You know, what am I going to get out of it if I do the right thing? Um, number three is interpersonal co- accord and conformity. So there's social norms, being a good girl, being a good boy. Number four is the authority and maintaining social order. This is the law and order mentality. So somebody passed a law, I'm going to do it. 
Numbers 5 and 6 are where we get into some transformation of heart and character. There's a, a social contract orientation because it's, it's good for the greater good. And 6 is the universal ethical principles with a, with a principled conscience. And I think that's where we get into design law. Um, so where do we think the rich young ruler fell in that, in that spectrum? I mean, I'm kind of thinking he was in the 3 to 4 level. I mean, I think he was past a, a punishment, avoidance, and self-interest. I think he, he thought he was being a good, a good guy and that there was some benefit to society to what he was doing. But he was called to something much deeper and obviously something he didn't expect or anticipate and something that was more important to him that he was, he was and he was unable to go there from everything that, that we're told in Scripture. So... Yeah, does the law of love require unselfish service in action and not just hearing or talking? Yeah. And when we understand natural law constructs, we understand what we are being commanded to do and what the law requires are not rules or regulations or obligations at all. They are merely the principles upon which life was created to operate, and they are intended only to restore us to our original design. So just as the law of respiration requires breathing, the law of my Volvo engine requires regular gas, the law of love requires us to be doers of the word. All right, let's look at Monday's lesson, which is entitled Being a Doer. So the first paragraph, I think, rightly points out that James' reference to being and doing are inseparable. In fact, the the tense of the Greek word that James uses for be does not refer to individual acts or behaviors, but it refers to an ongoing lifestyle of obedience. So in this class, Tim has often used the analogy of breathing. How often do we think about breathing? It's kind of an involuntary reaction. But the, the natural law of respiration requires us to breathe if we decide to Uh, deviate from that law and tie a bag around our heads and refuse to breathe, there's going to be some natural consequences associated with that. Well, when we are one back to trust and we open our hearts to the transforming power of the Spirit and allow the law of love to be rewritten back on our hearts and minds, then this unselfish behavior, loving others more than ourselves and being a doer of the word will be as natural to any of us as breathing. Which, I mean, isn't that what we all want? So uh, one of the founders of our church put it this way. um, This is a quote that we've read uh, frequently in this class. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his, his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. That's in Christ Object Lessons, page 311. I feel like the way the world is today, if we consider ourselves doers, we could be doing, doing, doing for others 24-7. Oh, there's certainly need there, isn't there? The need is there. More More than can be quenched. So notice the timing and sequencing of the events in that quote. You notice what comes first? When we submit ourselves to Christ, when we are one back to trust, when we open the heart and have the law recreated in our hearts and minds, that must come first. It's only then that we have any capability of becoming like Christ in mind, heart, and behavior. So, we already talked about some folks that got it backwards and allowed an oppressively long list of rules to come first. And in fact, they were so focused on the behaviors that the very God they were trying to impress with their works came and lived among them and they murdered him. So I like the way Paul puts it in Galatians 2.16. This is the message version. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know it? We tried it. 
and we had the best system of rules this world has ever seen, convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. And if you need more evidence that being a doer of the word is really about a heart transformation first, uh, we can look at Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These were folks that were doing the word. I mean, they were doing the same works as someone who had a character transformation. And we're told that they're not even going to be recognized. So it's really not about the behavior or the work that's being done. It's about the heart motivation and the character being transformed to be like Christ. Yes? The thought that's striking me is, would this not be why we are so strongly cautioned in Scripture not to judge? Mm -hmm. Because... You're reading my notes, apparently. (laughs) Do you want me to wait? No, go for it. What I'm thinking is... We can judge a person that does everything. Absolutely. And their heart is totally not there. Stone. And we judge them as righteous, da 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 da. Yes. We judge somebody else as unrighteous because we don't see them doing everything by the book. But the reality is, if it is our heart motivation that is the key, yes, by. By their fruits, we will know them. Our heart will cause change in our life. That's right. It will affect our behavior, our choices, everything. But that doesn't come first. That's an outgrowth. Absolutely. So somebody can have a pure heart seeking and may not do everything we think they should be doing because their development of that heart thing is is not in in that that's not where the Lord has them right. That's correct. And they may be far more a seeker after God's heart than the person that is giving the perfect. Image. Yes. Look where Christ spent his time. He was not with the folks that were checking off the rules boxes. He was out amongst the the lowest class in society, typically judged that way because of their behavior. That's exactly what you're saying. Thank you. That was well said. Yes. Uh, I want to consider another thing. The ho- we are a total person, and what we do affects our thinking, and what our thinking affects our doing. Totally agree. That's why sometimes we tell children to do the right thing because it will influence their thinking and their heart as well, and adults too. And so that's why we shouldn't judge because... Even if our heart isn't converted, we begin by doing. Yes. We begin by, do, like a habit, you begin by doing it, and after a while it becomes part of you. It influences your thinking and it influences your heart. So we can't always just put away all the works and say they don't matter. No, I completely agree. Thinking. Not what I'm saying. And I mean, we use the, the toothbrushing example in, in this class a lot. Because that does start with behavior. You have a rule for your two-year-old that you brush your teeth. Not because they have a heart to save their teeth. It's because mom's making me. I mean, I don't want to condemn uh, the rules. It's just because they're there, you know. Right, but but I think we we are designed to progress along that scale of moral development. That he doesn't want us to stay at the mom has a rule stage. You know what I mean? Even if that's where we start. I, I agree. That's where, that's where we run into trouble with thinking that we can judge someone else. I mean, 
it's man looks on the outward appearance. That's all we got. We don't have the the insight inside, which to me means you got to leave it alone. It's the we're all terminal. We're exhibiting different symptoms, but we're all in the same ward. You know what I mean? We all need the same healing remedy. I was going to say, I think the rules factor represents that heart of stone that we often have. Yes. And that God talked about. I think the relationship um, situation represents that heart of flesh that he wants. You know, I, I deal with contractors all over the country, and a lot of them I don't know, um, but work with them on the, off the phone. And they do technically the right thing oftentimes. Mm-hmm. But, um, but when something goes wrong, because I don't know them, right. I find myself becoming very frustrated with them um, because there's no relationship yes. that I have. The only relationship I have is, is per phone. You take me to a point where I can get to know this person, get to know them, get to know their family a little bit and such, and now I know who they are, the same situation can turn where I'm actually defending them right. prior to them um, trying to give excuses and such. And I think that you know, that's really, I find, what this message has done for me is it got me to realize that, that this God who loves me so much just really wants a relationship with me. Once that relationship comes in, then these things that like toothbrushing or, you know, just the, the simple things that are, are, were put in place to keep me from harm. Right. Now I recognize the harm that it provides. So a lot, sometimes rules don't even apply. Exactly. I have that relationship with him and all I want to do is serve him. Yes. So if we are busy doing or being doers of the word, exactly what is it we should be doing? <laughs> so let's take uh, some of that instruction straight from the word. Can someone look up and read aloud Luke six twenty-seven through 36? But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on one cheek, let him hit the other one too. If someone takes your coat, let him have your shirt as well. Give to everyone who asks you for something, and when someone takes what is yours, do not ask for it back. Do for others just what you want them to do for you. Thank you. Continue on to 36. Yes, read through 36. If you love only the people who love you, why should you receive a blessing? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you receive a blessing? Even sinners do that. And if you lend only to those from whom you hope to get it back, why should you receive a blessing? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. No, love your enemies and do good to them. Lend and expect nothing back. You will, ha- you will then have a great reward, and you will be children of the Most High God, for he is good to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful." Isn't that powerful? So has anyone here ever actually had the opportunity to do that? And I, I say opportunity not because, not being sarcastic or not because it's easy, but it really can be an opportunity, a life-changing opportunity for both parties. Has anybody ever done that, would be willing to share what the outcome was of, of being able to, to love someone that, that hurt you or mistreated you? Yes. Um, I had some issues with uh, a parent at one time that had done. She passed away before she she has a she was a victim of extreme mental illness, and she, when I was a child, did some things to me that were pretty bad. And she died in two thousand seven, and I was angry for a while, but then I I forgave her, mm. and to this day, I wish that things that she was alive and could have been better. And if she were, I would love her more than ever. Thank Wow, thank you for sharing that. Um, not to go too deep into to personal experience, but I have had, in my experience, the opportunity to, to put this into practice. Um, I, I had somebody, wouldn't say that there was hatred involved, but for sure, um, hurt, hurt me, betrayed me. Um, in uh, in a significant way, so there was there was every cause for some righteous indignation, um, 
And uh, as James says, looking in the mirror and knowing enough about myself, I knew, and knowing my genetics and things like that, I knew that I probably had some proclivity towards some anger and some resentment, um, some bitterness that could be harbored. And I have had the the chance to see what that looks like over time. So I knew from the get-go, I prayed, I begged that God would take away any bitterness, any anger, any uh, any grudge that might be held, um, and to give me the ability to see this person as he sees this person, and to be able to pray for them with compassion and forgiveness. Um, and like I said, knowing as much about myself as I do, to see that happen, there was no question in my mind that it was supernatural, that a, that a miracle had been performed. Um, and, and my relationship with this person today is, is very civil. Uh, I was also close with the person's family. And as they watched this transpire, they would ask me, how, how are you able to be so nice? How are you able to, to treat this person with such kindness when they don't deserve it? So um, it also happened to be around the time when I started going to this class. So I was able to share with this person and with this person's family some of the concepts I learned here in a way that I'm positive I never would have been able to Amen. if that had not, had not been transpiring. So really... Um, Makes you makes you grateful because, like I said, you can see something not of yourself and really not like yourself happening. And I don't I don't think that that any of us in our humanity are capable of of doing what is asked of us in these chapters for somebody that mis- mistreats us or or hates us. Yes, I'm working on loving your enemies. It's it's absolutely great. I love what this says about Christ. He gives us no excuses. Right. You know, we're so full of it. Even from children, we, oh, so-and-so's fault or so forth. But this gives us no excuse to hold on to that. If if we were molested as a child, these things that go through our lifetime, this gives us no excuses whatsoever to do nothing but love. Yes. And this is, I, I... I have a hard time of loving people that are not very nice to my children. I yeah. get over it myself. <laughs> it comes to my, and I know women, you know, really, uh, is having a hard time forgiving those people. Yes. But we should treat every human being as our child. Do we forgive them like we do our children? Right. Uh, you know, so... This is a lot of work, and I appreciate Christ telling me you don't have an excuse. Get over yourself. Yes, and demonstrating it. I mean, every time he deals with any one of us, he is demonstrating exactly what he's asking us to do. Um, And, I mean, that is the coals of fire. I've got to tell you, for the person that has enacted the wrong, I mean, they have to be pretty hardened to not understand that they're in the wrong and to be then treated with forgiveness and love and compassion. It is a very effective tool for working on that person's heart that something else, maybe nothing else could touch. Yes. I think it's really important right there to say that loving does not mean a lack of boundaries. Absolutely. And I don't think that we can truly forgive anyone without putting proper boundaries in place along with the forgiveness. I agree. Yeah, it's not an agree an agreement to keep getting hurt. It's agreement it's an agreement to love and forgive. Um so, I have a strong belief, we talked about this earlier that maybe what we don't do is just as important as what we do do when being a doer of the word. So if you've still got Luke 6 pulled up, if you want to read verses 37 and 38, we can talk about what uh, what she was talking about earlier. Do not judge others and God will not judge you. Do not condemn others and God will not condemn you. Forgive others and God will forgive you. 
Give to others and God will give to you. Indeed, you will receive a full measure, a generous helping poured into your hands, all that you can hold. The measure you use for others is the one that God will use for you. So, yeah, I think that's one of the judging is one of the things we can leave out of the list of being doers of the word. I just, it gets us nothing, gains us nothing. So, let's look at Tuesday's lesson. This lesson is entitled, The Law of Freedom. That's one of the natural laws we talk about in this class. Um, A part of the, the teacher's portion of the quarterly had an interesting comment in it. It stated, Seventh-day Adventists have sometimes been characterized as hopeless legalists in bondage to the law. Nowadays, some SDAs go to the opposite extreme and seem afraid to even mention the law for fear of being misunderstood. After all, can God's law really have anything to do with freedom? Which law? (laughs) That's my next question. Is What kind of understanding of God's law is required for it to be liberating or be a source of freedom. It's the natural law construct. I mean, I cannot say growing up that I found a lot of liberty and freedom in being taught what God's law was. That, that really never came up. Um, is obeying the law in order to avoid punishment really freeing? I'm thinking no. I just wonder if somebody can expound a little bit. Uh, there are natural laws. The Ten Commandments seem to be natural laws to me, uh, except this, the Fourth Commandment. I can't, uh, I can't see that. I mean, you know, it could be substituted to Sunday <laughs> without uh, uh, hurting I mean, this is how it seems in a shallow way, but I don't know if somebody can explain that. Well, the Ten Commandments were, were part of an imposed law, is, is my understanding. God, God imposed the Ten Commandments. They were a revelation of this bigger natural law, but they were imposed on humanity at a certain time for a certain group of people to address a certain set of needs. Um, and the Fourth Commandment... You know, it, it starts off with remember the Sabbath, indicating that it had been part of God's law all along, ever since creation. And um, you know, we've been over you know many times that um, the, the, the the Sabbath represents. Is Sabbath is a uh, an, an evidence of who God is. It's an evidence of His character. It's an evidence that He will allow freedom and dissension and he will allow his created beings the time to think for themselves and accept or reject uh, what he's what he has uh, given them as, as for their benefit and he will love them just the same that, that, that's the that's the evidence of the Sabbath when you when you look at the Sabbath from an imposed law lens then you think that well if if this church committee represented, we're, we're God's vicars, we're God's representatives uh, uh, on, on earth, we can therefore vote to change the day of worship because the law is imposed to begin with. We can impose it, we can change the imposition. So to look at the Sabbath from a natural law lens versus an imposed law lens, you, the, two, the two views are, are polar opposites. And aren't we told that the, I mean the Ten Commandment law is followed the the covenant of circumcision and all of those imposed um, sets of rules were given because they did not grasp the original natural design law that was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. So as we continue to degrade we kept forgetting and getting darker and darker, and so the the revelations of God's character in law had to become more and more specific, with the Ten Commandments being more specific. Well, it's interesting because when we talk about the law, being doers of the law, I think for the majority of Christian population at this point, we default to thinking about the Ten Commandments. Absolutely. But that's not what the Bible talks about. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean... 
those verses we just read in Luke, you know, when the rich young ruler came to Christ, it wasn't at all about That's right. not killing your neighbor or not telling lies. It was the understanding was that if you loved as we are to love, you're not going to kill them. Right. Here, you know, so not only your neighbor, but your enemies. Yes. You know, those who hate you, those who've asked you to carry something you'd had no business carrying, do it again. Yeah. You know, he needs your coat. Give him everything. So I think when we talk about the ten, when we're talking about being doers, we're not talking about doing the Ten Commandments, acting on the Ten Commandments. That that will happen if we're truly doers of this. Absolutely. And this, this isn't something that we can do. Not in and of ourselves. Right? I mean, the only way that we can turn the other cheek after one's been slapped is if, if Christ is doing that. Yes. yes. And we are like him. I, I think we have to close. Sorry. That went quicker than I had anticipated. Yes, you say your point. One closing thought. Requested to maybe expound on it. Think about the Ten Commandments, just in the light of what we were asking. What wording in any other commandment would we want to change? The wording in the Ten Commandments is very specific as far as the seventh day, what day of the week that is. So the question becomes... What, if we look at any other commandment, what other wording would we want to change? Even one word. So I'll just offer that. Thank you. Interesting. Thank you for your active participation and for being here today. Thanks to our online listeners. Let's close class with prayer. Father God, thank you for being here with us today, for helping to give us the true picture of who you are, who you want us to see you as and who you want us to be. Father, let us be like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.